How you going, Sunday Night Church? Good to um, see you here. Um, and if you've been tracking with us, this is the third week of the prequel, um, the story behind the story. And I know Bernie and Noah Schneider from last week have referenced Star Wars a lot, and I'm all about it. You know, when I was a kid and you went to the movies, it was always a double feature, two movies back to back with intermission in the middle where you would buy um, a big bucket of popcorn and load up on all things sugar, which made watching the second movie really interesting. Um, and I don't know if they did that here in New Zealand, but I know that's how I grew up. And the double feature that I saw multiple times was Star Wars and Rocky, and it was epic. Oh. But <laughs> Tosh, Tosh is in the house. But when my girls were growing up, it was all about the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And my daughter, Shannon, she's gonna kill me for saying this, is an expert about all things Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter. And she would force us to watch it again and again, and she would do the same thing every time. Because she had read The Hobbit um, Heats, the prequel to The Lord of the Rings, way before the movie came out, she would pause the DVD and quiz us and would say, do you know what's happening here? Do you understand the significance of what is going on? And if we couldn't remember, she would answer and would proceed and, and tell us the backstory. Here's the deal with Gollum. Let me tell you all about Bilbo Baggins. And you would think that it would be annoying, but it wasn't. It made watching the movies so much more meaningful and poignant when you knew and understood the backstory, the story behind the story, and so it is with the prequel. And like Bernie said, during the series, we will be looking at six key stories in the Old Testament that are, in essence, a prequel to the gospel, a prequel to the story of Jesus. And let me tell you, church, it is breathtaking. Let's pray. We praise your name, Father, and we're so grateful that you dwell with your people and that you're here tonight. And God, as we crack into your word, it's a sobering text. It's a serious text. And God, I just pray that we would be able to lean in and that you would pierce us with your word and that it would have an effect. God, I pray that you would um, minister to us, but that we would see you in a new way. And so, God, I pray for myself and I pray for everyone here that you would, God, have your way, have your way, have your way in this place. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So in week one, we went right um, back to the story of creation, when God creates nature and all living things, and he sets life into motion. He creates and breathes life into humanity, and they chose to go astray and walk away from God. Then God, in his mercy, came to one man, Abram who was worshiping little gods made of sticks and stones. And God said, let me introduce you to the real God, the God who actually made all this. And not just introduce you to him, I'm going to have a relationship with you, and you are going to be mine. And I'm going to move you, Abraham, to a piece of land, and I'm going to give you descendants, more than you can count, more than the stars in the sky. And I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless your kids. And through you, you are going to bless every family on the planet. And so Abraham moves where God told him. And Abraham has a son, Isaac, who has a son, Jacob, 
who has 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel. And they had sons, and they began to grow and increase in number. And Jacob and his sons then moved down to Egypt, where they flourished for decades, and they became a mighty nation of people. You see, they are fulfilling the mandate given in Genesis to be fruitful and multiply, which leads us to the book of Exodus. As you can already tell, this is going to be a long story short. There's no way to do this book justice in one sermon. And like Bernie said a couple weeks ago, that if we told every story in the Old Testament, we would be here for two years. I would like to suggest that we could spend two years just studying Genesis and Exodus and still not have mined or come close to all the riches and gold found in here. It is endless. You see, the big story in the New Testament for us is the death and resurrection of Jesus. But for the Jew, it is the Exodus. Now, the book of Exodus is a continuation of the story of Genesis. It's a double feature, back to back. And in the opening chapters of Exodus, we see that Pharaoh has enslaved the Israelites because he was worried about this ethnic group. He subjects them to harsh labor and ruthless labor. And you can hear that refrain over and over again. And as generations went by under this harsh and ruthless labor, the Israelites begged and cried out to God who had rescued their ancestors to come. Who had rescued their ancestors to come and rescued them. And God hears their cry. He has seen how his chosen people have been afflicted and oppressed. And in his mercy, in the midst of unthinkable circumstances, a deliverer is born. You see, Pharaoh has been so terrified at how the Israelites are growing and increasing in number that he decreed that all the male babies born in Israel are to be killed, thrown into the, um, all the babies born to the Israelites are to be killed, thrown into the Nile to drown. But five brave women, the Hebrew midwives, Pua and Shipra, Moses' mother and sister, and even Pharaoh's daughter, dared to defy Pharaoh and let the male sons live. An Israel deliverer is born. Moses. And he was raised by Pharaoh's daughter in the palace, right under Pharaoh's nose. Epic. Now fast forward 40 years, and Moses flees Egypt after killing an Egyptian who was beating one of the Hebrew slaves. And he ends up fleeing and living in this place called Midian. Now fast forward another 40 years, and Moses is now 80 years old and tending sheep in the wilderness at Mount Horeb when God calls out to him from a burning bush. Moses, Moses. And God tells him that he has heard the cry of his people and he has seen their misery and he is going to deliver them out of slavery. And he tells Moses to go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses incredibly is like, what? What are you talking about? Who am I? I can't go send someone else. And five times, Moses has an excuse of why he can't go. Who am I? Send someone else. And I would encourage you, church, to take some time and read the story in Exodus 3 for yourself because you will see in these verses the stunning grace, mercy, patience, long-suffering, 
and love of the Lord as he talks and has this conversation with Moses. It's amazing. And Moses says to God, who shall I say sent me? In other words, what is your name? And God says, tell the people that I am who I am has sent you. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In essence, it's not about your limitations, Moses. I am going with you. I am going to deliver the people. So finally, Moses goes back to Egypt and he tells Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go. And how does Pharaoh respond? Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. And chapter after chapter, God shows Pharaoh just who is the Lord. And he sends divine judgment in the form of plagues. Plague after plague that comes crashing into Egypt. Okay, here's some class participation. For those of you that, who went to Sunday school, can you name the first nine plagues? Doesn't have to be in order, but can you call them out? Water turned to blood. Frogs, that's good. Locust, yep, that's three. Boils, yeah. Yeah, hail. Fl um, flies, yep, yep. Flies, what else? Yeah, that's the 10th one, we're gonna get to that one. Yeah, what else? We got locusts, yep. Darkness, yeah, that's a good one. Yep, we've got that one. There's one more. Well, we'll talk about the 10th one in a minute, but there was also the diseased livestock as well. But you got them all. Well done. You guys were paying attention in Sunday school. Well done. You see, what is so interesting about these plagues is that each plague corresponds to a god that the Egyptians worshipped. We don't have time to unpack that tonight, but the point is God is showing his mighty hand. But Pharaoh's heart is hardened and unmoved, and over and over he refuses to let God's people go. And now we come to the climactic moment in this plague narrative. God comes to Moses and he says, yet one more plague, and then Pharaoh will let you go. And the final plague that God brings that will loosen the grip of Pharaoh is the plague of death. Death is coming to Egypt. Specifically, the death of every firstborn son. And God gives specific instructions about how this is going to go down. And he tells Moses to go and tell the people. And it's an extensive chapter, but we're going to pick up at Exodus 12, verse 21. It says, Then Moses summoned all the elders, in, all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of, this, out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and on the sides of the door frame and will pass over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your house and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance, ordinance, 
ordinance for you and your descendants. And when you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? You tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when we struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was a loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house where someone without someone dead. I feel like I want to say this is the word of the Lord. What a sobering text. You see, for the, the first nine plagues are all really threatening this 10th plague. And what is astounding about that is that even in the midst of divine judgment, there is grace. God told them way back in Genesis 15 that this was going to happen. And in one breath, God declares that he's going to judge Egypt. And then he takes 12 long chapters to do so. Think about all the drama that has happened in between. God gives the people of Egypt um, and Pharaoh so many opportunities to repent. The previous nine plagues are evidence of that. And when you read the narrative, we see glimpses of this in Pharaoh, with Pharaoh when he says um, to Moses, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I've sinned. Get rid of the gnats. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, get rid of the frogs. When you get rid of the plagues, then, then I will let your people go. But once the plague is gone, he hardens his heart every time and goes back on his word. Sorry, but not sorry. And all throughout the scriptures, we read of stories like this, where mankind abuses God's grace over and over and over again. And God, he extends more grace. You know, I was reading an article online about a popular website for atheists where they share rebuttals about Christianity or towards Christianity. And on it, they share the different stories they've had as they've encountered and had arguments with other Christians. And one of their most famous rebuttals that they share with one another, and they're getting this from philosophers of old, so you might have heard about it, is that when they come across a Christian or Christians, they would put up a table or find something to stand on and say, listen, if your God really exists, then I'm going to stand on this table. And if he really exists, then he'll knock me off, off of it. And if he really exists, then he'll strike me down dead for mocking him. And so they stand on the table and wait, timing it with their watches, and wait for about 15 minutes. And on the website, they're just laughing back and forth as they said the Christians, rightfully so, were kind of looking around with awe like, what is going to happen? And I can imagine myself there, if I was hearing that, I would too. I'd be like, mm, mm, you know, waiting for lightning to strike. And they would just stand there. And at the end of 15 minutes, they would say, see, I told you that your God doesn't exist. And I love the way how one professor rebuts this. He says, it's not that you've proven that God doesn't exist. Really, 
philosophically, you have, to, you have to have more work to do that than that. What you've just proven is, if, if there really is an all-knowing, all-powerful God, the only thing you've proven with this is that he's awfully gracious and merciful. We can see that here. But finally, in these passages in Exodus, we see that where God has been extending the hand of grace, he then now exchanges it for the hand of judgment. You see, death and judgment are coming to Egypt. And the question is, why? Why is God taking out the firstborn sons of these people? What is the significance of that in this moment? And what is the significance for us? Well, was this necessary for him to do, to free his people? Is this what God had to do to get Pharaoh to let his people go? Was it necessary for their rescue? You know, it's interesting because if you keep reading your Bible, there is actually a second exodus with just as many people as this one. The entire people of Israel are carried off as captive and carried off to Babylon, carried off as slaves, which is way further than Egypt. And they are carried off for a whole generation when God set them loose and brought them home. But he didn't use great plagues. He didn't use thunder and lightning. He came to a king, Cyrus of Persia, and just tweaked his heart. And it says that God moved Cyrus's heart. And Cyrus let God's people go. Go home. It's not a real climactic story. God could have done this here in this exodus. So why do this, God? Why kill the firstborn sons? You see, this Passover narrative takes three full chapters of God explaining why he's doing it, and particularly how to memorialize it and remember it year after year on into forever. What you see is that God is not doing this just to get their attention. The plagues have already done that. He has everybody's attention. God wants them to understand that death is coming for everyone. From the firstborn of Pharaoh sitting on the throne to the firstborn of the servant girl working on the handmill, right down to the firstborn of the prisoner in the dungeon. From the most privileged to the most disenfranchised. So why the firstborn kids? You see, in the ancient world, success was not measured primarily by individual success. The primary goal was for success of the family. When a man was about to die, he wouldn't take his inheritance and divide it amongst his other children because that would dilute his family's power. You see, you kept all your land and money together and you gave it to your firstborn son so that your family could keep the wealth and power consolidated and that your son and your son would rule over all of it. So when you had a firstborn son, all the hopes of that family's future was pinned on that boy. He was the family. So God picks the firstborn son. It's not random. It was a way to show that he was pronouncing judgment on all. But in his love and mercy, he does it in a way that doesn't wipe out everyone. He pronounces judgment on the firstborn sons because they represent the family. And why bring them death? You see, when God created the world and when everything functions as God intends, everything, it's, everything leads itself to grow and flourish. And when you and I violate God's law, things break down. Like when we don't take care of our bodies and eat and do things that are bad for our health, sickness is coming for us. 
If we hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness, it poisons relationships. If we violate God's, if we violate God's law physically and relationally, it leads to breakdown. And God shows them that if you continue to resist me and rebel against me, the author of life, to shove me away, you court death. Sin and disobedience against God's word always brings a death of some kind, always. It happened to Adam and Eve. You eat this fruit and you shall surely die. But here's the thing. We don't always get to see it take place as quickly. We don't always get to see death take place immediately. Sometimes we think we can be disobedient. And, and I'm talking to myself here, and, and I'll use I instead of we. Sometimes I think I can be disobedient and sin against God, and somehow God is just joking or lying or just playing, ar playing around. Just know that this is a picture of what happens because of sin. People always die. For them, it was physically. But for us, it's spiritually. And we also die relationally. We see here that everybody in this scenario is guilty, not just Pharaoh. All of Egypt had participated in dismissing God, worshiping other gods, and enslaving the people of Israel. Everyone in Egypt was under the judgment of God, and not just everyone in Egypt, all of Israel too. And even though he was going to liberate them, they were guilty too. And all throughout scripture, you will find that idol worship would be one of those bad habits and patterns that the Israelites would find so hard to shake. The point is, everybody's guilty. No one is innocent in this deal. So God takes the truth that is true of mankind, and he distills it down to this one moment. And he says, I'm going to make it clear that death is coming for everybody. But listen to the incredible grace of God. He gives his people a way out. You know what's amazing is that God could have just destroyed Egypt in one fell swoop, just wiped them out with one word, but he doesn't. He has a conversation with them about what he's about to do. The God who brings judgment also gives a way of escape because when God announces judgment, judgment is the last thing that God wants to do. So he provides a way out. The way to escape death is through death. God says, take a lamb, a young spotless male lamb in the prime of its life, and I want you to kill it. And when you have killed it, I want you to drain the blood out, and I want you to take the blood, and I want you to paint it on your door and put it on your doorposts. And God spends three chapters dev devoted on how to do that. Why? Because God loves symbolism. So do we, by the way. What do we do for the most sacred moments of our lives, like graduation, marriage, and funerals? We put symbols around it because it's meaningful to us. Now, there's something, there's something so special about standing in front of your friends and family at a wedding and watching the bride and groom exchange vows and rings, the imagery of it. There is powerful memory tied to the physicality of it. And God says, I want you to paint the lamb's blood on the lintel and the doorpost. And then I want you to roast the meat. I want you to eat it and ingest it. God says, I want you to take the sacrifice of this spotless, innocent lamb, and I want it, and I want you to make it a part of you. So when death comes through Egypt, when the destroyer comes, he will not divide you ethnically. 
So everybody stay indoors. Death will look for this. Someone is going to die in this house tonight. Either a firstborn son or a substitute. An innocent lamb slain. And you live under the blood of that innocent one that was slain for you. You take into your body that act of sacrifice by faith and death will pass over you. That's the message that God is giving his people. And God says, and he spends a lot of chapters saying this, make sure you do this every year. Eat it every year. Take part of this every year. The Passover should go on for generations. It should go on into forever. You will need to remind your kids about this. And we are still talking about it today. You see, the thing about the Exodus is that it's not just a true story or an epic movie like the Ten Commandments or the Prince of Egypt. Exodus is a picture of our story. It's a picture of us. Because things that were true of them then are true of us. Death is coming to everybody, to the most privileged, to the most disenfranchised. And all through scripture, we see that death is an enemy. When God spun the universe into creation, and that's what's so incredible about the beginning of the book of Genesis, God moves oceans aside, causes the ground to grow up, sends grass across the plains, trees jutting up into the sky. He causes the waters to teem with all kinds of fish and fills the sky with all kinds of birds. He creates this wonderful dynamic where everything works together to produce life because our God is a giver of life. And God made the word beautiful, the world beautiful. And when everything lives that way, and it lives the way it is meant to live, everything flourishes. And so it is with us. When I speak to you, I speak words of life. Um, and how I treat you brings life. My mouth, my hands, my body, my decisions, all of it used to promote life. That's the world God built. But when humanity broke away from its creator, we ushered in death. This horrible, relentless, life-taking that gives nothing back. Death comes from guilt. And it's ours and we brought it in. It's a horrible thing to contemplate the sins done by me. And also the sins done to me. You know, 1 Corinthians, and we sung it tonight, the, the sting of death. 1 Corinthians 15 says, the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. You know, that word sting is the word poison. It's the poison like a scorpion. And it's not the sting that hurts you most. It's the poison that it releases. And what is the poison of death? What is the part that eats away at us? The sting of death is sin. We fear death because we're afraid of dying with a guilty conscience, Scripture says. The terror of death is guilt. But here's where it gets good, church. There is a way out. And the way out of death and the sting of death is through death. You see, in the story of Exodus, when God passed over and spared his people, throughout this, it's God is pointing to something bigger than just freeing his people from captivity from Pharaoh in Egypt. It's all pointing to something bigger. See, in the Garden of Eden, when God said to Abe, Adam and Eve, walk with me and you will have life. And what did our first parents do? They rebelled against him. They pushed God away and severed their connection with him. 
they, and they will surely die. And when God came to them, what happened? Did he kill them? No. God took an innocent animal, and he killed it. And, and, in, it, and in their place, he covered, it, he covered them with um, its body. Did that make everything okay? No, but he did it. And later, Abraham, later God comes to Abraham and said, your firstborn has to die, Abraham. And incredibly, Abraham takes his son, his only son, Isaac, whom he loved. Sound familiar? And lays him on an altar to sacrifice him. And God says, no, do not touch the boy. There will be no human sacrifice. No one takes the life of their son for me. No, God provides the substitute. A lamb to die in your place, but it didn't make things okay. And we get to this moment here where God says, everybody's guilty, death is coming, an instant lamb has to die, and you put yourself under the blood and the destroyer will pass over you. And God tells the nation of Israel to repeat this year after year, sacrifice an animal so that you will see that someone innocent has to pay for, your, for the death we brought into the world. So what does this mean? And then Isaiah comes along. And Isaiah, and Isaiah speaks of a man who Isaiah calls like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears that is silent, so he did not open his mouth. There is going to be a man who is like a lamb. And he says of this man, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. And he fast forward to the New Testament. And John the Baptist is out in the wilderness preaching that the kingdom of God is near. God is coming to make things right again. And as he's preaching, Jesus Christ walks by. And John chapter 1, uh, 1 says that John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, there is a lamb, a substitute who will take our debt for us. That's the man. And when Jesus walked this earth, he was a giver of life. You are blind, I give you sight. You are sick, I bring you healing. You are dead, I make you alive. He was a giver of life. He is a giver of life. A spotless lamb who knew no sin. And the Bible goes through great pains to tell us that Jesus arrives in Jerusalem at the beginning of the Passover. And as he stands with his disciples at the Passover meal in the upper room, that is meant to commemorate this moment in Exodus. And he holds up a piece of bread that traditionally you were meant to break and say, this is the bread of our affliction in Egypt. But Jesus holds up the bread and says, and says instead, this is my body and my body will break for you. And then he takes the cup. The cup of wine, he says, this is my blood that will be poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And in Luke's gospel, he says that Jesus was killed at twilight, the moment you would sacrifice the Passover lamb. Jesus did not come to be a teacher or a healer. He came to be a substitute. Hebrews says, the children have flesh and blood. He too shared in that humanity 
so that by death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, and that is the devil, and free those who through all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. He who knew no sin became sin for us. What an extravagant love. Now I'm going to close, and I'll invite the band up. Sinclair Ferguson, a Scottish theologian, said this, and I want you to hear this. The gospel is not God loved us because Jesus died. But it sounds close. But that's not the gospel. It's not God loves you because Jesus died. As if Jesus is having to convince the Father to love us. As if there is discord in the Trinity. Or as if Jesus is the loving one and God is the father who is mean and a wrathful God who is just trying to get at these wicked people. And Jesus is in the way just keeping this wrathful God from getting to us. No, 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 no. The gospel is not God loved us because Jesus died. The gospel is God loves us so Jesus died. Jesus helps us understand or answer the question, in what way, in what manner has the Father loved us? And what Jesus says in this way, this is how your daddy loves you. It's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loved us, so Jesus died. It is because he loves us that Christ died for us. Oh, church, what a gospel. And I would say to anyone here tonight who's not a Jesus follower, I would ask that you would consider a God like that, who is just enough to punish evil and gracious enough to take the punishment, that he is just and he's a justifier. That's a powerful God. That is an awesome God. That is our King Jesus. And to the Jesus follower, we may believe this message of Jesus has paid my debt and set me free, and you're like, yeah, I've heard this all before. But the reality is, and I know for me, we still live like slaves to our sin. Let's not belittle God by acting like his sacrifice wasn't enough. He gave it all for you. He gave it all for me. Let's receive it, believe it, and walk in it. And no, Ben, it's okay. Oh, they're coming. <laughs> you know, um, when Israel walked out of Egypt, they made a lot of mistakes in the desert. So many mistakes. But they did one thing right when they walked out of Egypt. They walked out singing of a God who would forgive anybody. And I don't know what weight or guilt you carry with you, but let me tell you something. When you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And Romans 8 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That is something to rejoice about. Amen? Amen. Amen. And amen. So we'll stand and we'll worship.